I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Coming up, recently I spoke with Dr. Afton Hassett, psychologist and pain researcher, about her book, Chronic Pain Reset, 30 Days of Activities, Practices, and Skills to Help You Thrive. Not just a guide for evaluating pain and its triggers, her book offers straightforward and often fun strategies to move past chronic pain. First, a look at some of the recent news in science. A different cause of pain is dengue fever, aka bone break fever, because of the excruciating bone and joint pain it causes. Avoiding the tropics used to be the way to avoid this mosquito-borne viral illness. Not anymore. This year, more than 4 million cases have been reported compared with half a million 20 years ago. A combination of warm weather and cases brought back by travelers sparked a surge in locally acquired infections in southern Europe. For dengue to become endemic in Europe, the virus would have to establish itself in the local mosquito population. Scientists aren't too concerned that this will happen soon, but the possibility exists because the tiger mosquito, native to southern Europe, carries the virus and breeds in very small pools of standing water. There's no specific treatment for dengue, and the current vaccines are not that effective. One issue is that there are four distinct viral subtypes, and no single vaccine targets all of them. One vaccine has about 60% overall efficacy against symptomatic dengue, but it is only recommended for people who have had dengue before. This is because in those who have never been infected, the vaccine can actually increase the risk of severe disease after infection. A second, safer vaccine is less effective against all four subtypes. And the third vaccine, recently developed by the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in Bethesda, is currently being tested and appears both safe and highly effective, but trials are still ongoing. And just this year, a Belgian pharmaceutical company announced promising trials of a treatment pill that eases symptoms. Currently, this option is pricey and so not reasonable for the bulk of the disease burden, which is in the tropics. The only good news about dengue is that in most people exposed to the virus, it causes an asymptomatic infection that can provide later immunity to the subtype they were exposed to. That report was published last week in the journal Nature. There are days every now and again I pretend I'm okay, but that's Chronic pain affects nearly 50 million people in the U.S. alone. New cases of chronic pain are reported more frequently than new cases of diabetes, hypertension, and depression. Many people are surprised to discover the most effective treatment for chronic pain involves a multi-pronged approach, including pain self-management, that allows patients to function more effectively. But it takes time to learn the activities and time to practice the skills. Dr. Afton Hassett is Associate Professor and Director of Pain and Opioid Research in the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Michigan and a Principal Investigator at the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center there. We spoke about her book, Chronic Pain Reset. 
Her book and research explore the key role that your brain plays in processing pain and how small, simple actions can make profound changes in how you experience chronic pain. Chronic Pain Reset is written for people with chronic pain and those who care for them. There are days every now and again I pretend I'm okay But that's not what gets me What hurts the most Who's been so close And having so much to say Welcome to the show, Dr. Afton Hassett. I'm speaking with Afton Hassett this morning, who is um, a researcher and director at the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center at the University of Michigan. And we're going to talk about the neuroscience of pain and some of the new techniques for treating what is fast becoming an epidemic of chronic pain. So I look forward to our talk, Afton. Oh, Beth, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. We were just laughing that it's interesting. I'm usually in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and here I'm in Denver. I'm out here for uh, to do the keynote at the International Pelvic Pain Society's meeting, meeting in downtown Denver this week. So it sounds like from your book, which I should mention is titled Chronic Pain Reset, 30 Days of Activities, Practices, and Skills to Help You Thrive, which we will dive into. But it sounds from reading your book that you and many researchers are aware that there's just been a, a big spike in the frequency incidence of chronic pain in this country. So I hope we can jump into that in depth. But first of all, would you address that um, rise in frequency and talk about your thoughts on the reasons underlying it? Yeah, so, well, we've always known that chronic pain is one of the biggest um, healthcare uh, concerns in the U.S. and really around the world. Most industrialized nations have similar numbers of chronic pain cases. We may be seeing more of that post-pandemic. I think uh, there um, was uh, a spike kind of throughout that time. I think there was a number of reasons why that could occur. It was very stressful, the isolation. Some people probably didn't seek health care as rapidly as they may have. That can partially explain it. But, you know, there are thoughts that just could be a little bit of a malaise of kind of where we are in our stressful society. Not to say that psychological factors cause chronic pain, but to say that many of the good health behaviors that we need to um, attend to, like diet, exercise, sleeping well, when those fall aside, often people who are vulnerable can indeed start expressing chronic pain. Yeah, and I think, and this is another thing that you explore in your book, that we're, many of us are aware of the importance of environmental priming, which is to say that factors in the environment can predispose us to different behaviors. And some of that behavior can be pain. And while I'm, I'm, I'm sure I can speak with accuracy in saying that all of us have experienced pain, not all of us have experienced chronic pain, which can be a learned response. And I'm not saying that's um, something intentional, but just based on the way our brains work. So uh, let's dive into that neuroscience of pain because it's so fascinating. And in your book, you talk in a really useful way about the distinction between bottom-up pain and top-down. And so let's start with that bottom-up pain because I think that historically that's been the one, the kind of pain that's been more investigated. Yeah. So 
When we think about the purpose of pain, it actually is incredibly protective that we need to have pain to um, warn us when we're encountering something like a hot, like a hot surface or to warn us to stay off of an injured um, ankle or you know to not to use a, a a wrist that is has been injured. So pain serves a very important signaling um, purpose and people who don't have pain receptors don't live very long. It's quite remarkable you know what a what an important element uh, pain is for our survival. But what does take place is pain can be caused by many things, bottom, what we call bottom up pain. So this is pain that starts anywhere from the neck down, right? So this can be a in, like I mentioned, an injured ankle, you might turn your ankle, it could be um, a uh, bone on bone osteoarthritis from perhaps your knee. It could be a tweaked back from picking up something too heavy. It could be inflammation from a condition like rheumatoid arthritis. But in these cases, there is some pain that's generated someplace in the periphery, someplace outside of, you know, lower than the neck. And that pain signal goes up to the brain where it's perceived and experienced. Without the brain there to detect that signal, there is no pain. Um, we think about perhaps in the case of surgery where somebody has an incision and because they are anesthetized when this incision is placed, there's no pain experience. But when the patient wakes up in the um, in the uh, recovery room, wow, the pain is right there, acute and very protective to tell us not to move to, to hurt that incision. Um, so that is bottom-up pain. But what happens with many forms of pain that starts in the periphery, say like a knee, that goes on and on for months and years, potentially what happens is that pain signal gets overlearned by the brain. The brain actually can either amplify that pain signal, make it worse when it's coming into the brain, or it can start creating pain completely on its own. And in a case where that happens, that's when we call top-down pain, where the experience of pain is predominantly due to the brain amplifying the signal or potentially even creating the signal itself. And I think that's such an important point that you stress the role of the brain, because I know in years past, um, and, and still even in many places, um, patients with chronic pain are dismissed. And, you know, they're told that their pain is all in their head. Well, of course, because all of our perception is on our brain, but that doesn't mean it's imaginary. There's yes. some real signaling that's gone on, and then mm -hmm. the brain has incorporated those signals. Let's take just a couple minutes to talk about the nature of those signals, because I think those are fascinating. The ones that come from the periphery, there's, as I recall, there's specific nerve fibers that are dedicated to transmitting pain signals into the spinal cord. And some drugs and some treatments, like even something as simple as pressure can interfere with those pain signals. Yes. Now, we do a lot of work with acupressure, as a matter of fact, um, you know, teaching people how to uh, stimulate acupressure spots in a way that can disrupt that pain signal that can be quite helpful, but it also can help fatigue and sleep. It's quite fascinating how those pathways are so interconnected. Um, but, you know, what, what we typically do want to do is uh, uh, consider behavioral changes that can also disrupt that, that, that pain signaling. And that can be as simple as uh, improving people's sleep 
because sleep has a tremendous influence in how how pain is experienced. And um, the nature of pain, you know, from what is generating it, say if it's inflammatory versus kind of a bone on bone grinding, again, those are different processes that activate different nerve fibers and thus are treated differently. So in the case of like rheumatoid arthritis, we want to um, address the neuroinflammation. We want to address the um, overactive immune system to try and back that down. That can decrease inflammation and improve pain. In the case of bone-on-bone osteoarthritis, we really want to dampen that experience of pain or even build um, synovium in the in the joint or replace the, the joint. Again, you know, it, it's very different. So depending on the type of pain, our approach, our medication um, does vary. There's not certainly not a one size fits all for um, for pain or chronic pain. Definitely, and that speaks to our individuality across all populations and the importance of tailoring a treatment to an individual. And I love it that you're you're focusing on both the bottom up pain and the top down with, you know, looking at and identifying the source and then identifying behavioral as well as um, physiological therapeutics Mm -hmm. that can address it. Love that you brought that up. But what's so incredible is behavioral interventions actually have biological um, correlates and changes in physiology. So we did an experiment some years back where we took healthy volunteers and who did not have chronic pain and we deprived them of exercise and sleep. These were people previously who had exercised pretty well and had good sleep. And over time, deprived of exercise and sleep, they developed chronic pain or something that looked a lot like fibromyalgia, one of the most common widespread chronic pain conditions. Then when we allowed them to exercise and sleep again, they restored their health. So again, there's this real tight tie to the um, behavioral, psychological, emotional, and physiological. Wow, that's a fascinating result. And it it speaks kind of to the homeostatic drive Mm -hmm. of the brain, which of course is part of our body in general, of the mind-body interface to restore its equilibrium. And I I totally agree with you. Sleep is just such an important aspect of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, you know, go ahead. Any ideas about the mechanism of sleep? Is it that cleansing mechanism of sleep on our brain that can potentiate that healing effect? You know, all the above, and actually a lot goes on as far as restoring um, kind of inflammation within the body during sleep, that all of those processes are balanced out too. And so when we when we disturb people's sleep repeatedly, we actually kind of set the body up for being in a little bit of a low-level inflammatory state, which we think might be a key element of what kind of maintains chronic pain. So yeah, so sleep um, works through many routes. So all of these different routes also provide different entrances for therapies. And so let's jump into some of the methods that you outline, because although people might say, well, this is just a behavior, how can it address the neurobiology? Anything that we do really is um, a potential way of affecting the brain. I, I love that you said that, Beth, because that is the driving factor. The more that we've understood of the, of the last two, two decades of neuroscience is how still 
um, malleable the brain is, even in later adulthood, that um, there remains this neuroplasticity to be able to be shaped by things as simple as diet and exercising and how we think and how we allow stress to affect us. So it does, it opens just this beautiful door to help, you know, remodel the dysfunctional uh, processing that's in the brain of many people with chronic pain. We we really feel very confident that um, many people with long-term chronic pain or even relatively recent chronic pain suffer from it because there are changes in the structure and the function of the brain, predominantly how some of the major networks interact with each other. And we show and others have shown through through anything from behavioral therapies to you know mindfulness and exercise that these networks that are interconnected in an unhelpful way, begin to disconnect once the, this, these, these kind of simple interventions are, are put in there. So again, it just tells us that uh, we have some great inroads to disrupt these systems and in a way, uh, reset the brain from having chronic pain. And I want to say that the latter half of your book does focus on those methods. And it's great because it's kind of a smorgasbord of different methods yes. and you, you lay them out and people can work with, with different approaches and try to find something that works for them. Again, that individuality, but I'm curious about how those um, networks that you're describing have been investigated. Like I, I understand that with the bottom up pain, there's been a lot of work using chemicals and even surgeries on animal models to identify those pathways. How do we see those networks in the brain? Is it primarily with MRI studies? Yeah, so we do a lot of work with fMRI. So I am um, a principal investigator at the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center in the Department of Anesthesiology, University of Michigan. And we are um, one of the largest interdisciplinary pain research teams in the world. And um, four of our principal investigators um, are heavily involved in neuroscience research. And um, what we do in many of our studies is probe how it is the brain is processing pain in people with chronic pain and people without chronic pain and people with different types of chronic pain. And we do a lot of this testing in an fMRI. So we, it allows us real time to apply a painful pressure and watch how the brain is processing that painful pressure. Is it amplifying it? Is it engaging different circuitry than compared to a person who does not have chronic pain? Are we seeing changes pre and post either a drug or a non-drug therapy? So this is really kind of our bailiwick, what, what we are um, so fascinated by. And, and, and one of the most interesting studies that we um, just published on within the last year or so um, involves data in children. There is this marvelous National Institutes of Health um, supported uh program called ABCD. And this is children who are um, who are followed longitudinally over time with many questionnaires, parental questionnaires as well, and brain scans. And what that allows us to do, this was a, um, a NIDA or National Institute of Drug um, Abuse uh, um, supported uh, initiative to help us see what makes um, these children become predisposed to substance use, chronic pain, and other um, mental health problems as they age. And the study that we conducted, we were able to look at uh, young children um, before they had any pain and follow them over time to see what might predict the onset of chronic pain. And what we found is that one of the best predictors was in the brain, that children who had the same 
oddly connected networks, the default mode network, along with the salience network, those children who had that when they did not have pain were much more likely to develop chronic pain down the road. So this tells us so much about kind of the, you know, the, the brain's potential vulnerability. And I think you mentioned before, then often there's an environmental trigger. There could be this, you know, kind of this predisposition and then something happens, be it an illness or a stressor or, um, or a, a physical trauma. <clears throat> Yeah, that's so fascinating about the interaction between our brain, which is buried in this hard skull and really insulated from the outside world, and all the environmental triggers that we perceive. It it speaks to the sensitivity, but also the plasticity of yes. our brain. And it, it goes both ways. Like we can have a predisposition that might have occurred even during fetal life, but then, you know, later in life, like you explore in your um, your methods section of the book, that we can go back in and we can fix it, not with neurosurgery, but with behavioral methods like mindfulness huh. or meditation. Yeah, it's 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 remarkable, and it it's so much what you kind of feed your brain, <laughs> and in terms of exercise and diet, but also in terms of the stress that you put on your brain, that the thoughts that we think, the emotions that we experience, um, really uh, can be very activating of the stress response system and can drive the pain and drive this um this unhealthy uh, uh neural connectivity the goal of the book was to translate what we've learned over the last two decades um for patients because so often the people themselves don't hear from us in research and, and what we're doing in our academic centers and talking amongst ourselves around the world they don't benefit and so the whole goal was to write a book for people with chronic pain, for clinicians who work with people with chronic pain, that first explains this complex neuroscience in a really hopefully accessible way that sometimes is funny and filled with stories, but that helps convey this very exciting neuroscience, along with the, the neuroscience and the findings that we know about uh, changing our emotions and changing our thoughts and ways that these can be um, uh, utilized to change how our brain is is processing pain. So even things like gratitude and uh, and healthy health, healthier relationships and finding purpose in life and being more mindful. These are these are like powerful medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And there's such a spillover into the mental health field as well wow. because these are proven techniques in terms of improving our mental health. And I yes. I just want to tell people too that um in addition to these these potential therapeutics that you explore in depth, um, you also present a number of anecdotes from people that have experienced really severe, debilitating chronic pain and have used some of these methods, you know, in their own lives to yeah. address their chronic pain. And, and as well, you have a really impressive um, list of resources and how to access them for yeah. people to pursue, which I think is it's great to have all these resources in one spot in this really useful book. Oh, thank you. So I think the, the goal was when, when we talk amongst ourselves as clinicians, people who treat people with chronic pain, I, I do much less of that now. I'm predominantly a researcher, but in talking to all the clinicians I work with, I'll ask them, hey, when you work with people with chronic pain or really any chronic medical condition, 
what do you think works best? And to a person, they will say, yeah, you know what actually works best for every patient is actually the thing that the patient is willing to do <laughs> that makes sense <laughs> to the patient and they'll actually do. So you can prescribe physical therapy to somebody if they think it's going to hurt them or it won't make sense, they're not going to go. Or you can prescribe a medication if, and if the, the patient doesn't see the benefit, they're not going to take it or not take it properly. And if you tell somebody behaviorally, hey, get out and walk in nature every day for 10 minutes. And they think that's stupid. How's that going to help? They're not going to do it. So what we do with the book is we try and provide the groundwork for why these things work, how they work. And then we introduce 30 different evidence-based um, activity skills and practices, one a day, so that people can think about them and interview them, so to speak. And so, you know, every day um, after the person has kind of read the background, the first like 14 chapters are very short. They begin kind of a what I call a 30 day kind of challenge where every day they wake up and they have a two page um, a day to look at. And that day it introduces a new evidence based activity skill or practice that they can read about. It could be could be activity pacing so you don't spark a new pain flare. It could be mindfulness breathing. It could be um, building healthier relationships. You know, there's so many different things, progressive muscle relaxation, mindfulness. But each day you read about one of these new um, activity skills and practices, how you do it, um, how you might just try it that day to see if you like it at all, and then what it looks like if you actually put it into practice. And what we have people do is they, we have them evaluate one each day. They give it a try. At the end of the day, they come back and they say, wow, I sort of think I could do this and it makes sense to me. And so you just make a mark. You kind of color in a little star just to remind you this one might be a keeper. Many people will try some of these things and think, oh, this is just stupid. <laughs> I have no interest in doing this. And so you skip that. And the goal is after the 30 days that the, the reader has anywhere from five to maybe 20 really cool things that they think they'd like to integrate into their life. And then the rest of the book is about how to do that. How do you prioritize? How do you do them slowly so you don't get overwhelmed? How do you do them in a way that makes the good ones habits? So it's really kind of how we do therapy when we're doing pain, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or act where we just introduce something kind of new each week, potentially, but it's kind of doing it in a quicker and I I think hopefully a um, more entertaining way for um, for the reader. Yeah, that's such a great point that you're trying to jumpstart this bench to bedside path, yes. which, you know, historically has taken so long in so many different fields. Well, I guess that's a good place to leave it then because we are out of time. But I, I want to thank you, Afton. We'll, I'll link to your book on our show website. And it was um, a fantastic read, very useful. Great. Thank you, Beth. I've enjoyed my time with you. Thank you for being so kind and uh, letting me talk to your audience. That was researcher and clinician Dr. Afton Hassett talking about her work on reducing chronic pain. This is a hugely understudied and poorly treated problem, not just in the U.S., and her work highlights the role of the brain in processing and modulating pain. This is not the same as saying pain is in your head, but recognizing that the central role the brain plays in perception and amplification of pain signals. I think her book is a great guide for anyone who suffers chronic physical pain, but also mental distress. You can find a link to the book in the show notes on the How on Earth website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Susan Moran is our executive producer and yours truly produced this week's show. 
Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Rascal Flats. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to material referenced in the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.